Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Let's continue in our spirit of worship by um, listening to the word from Ezra chapter 9, read. If you would like to follow along, you can take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Ezra chapter 9, and we will read uh, the whole chapter. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard and sat down devastated. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, while I sat devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you. Because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over, along with our kings and priests, to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment... Grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity so that you will be strong, uh, eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever." After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and had allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Father, we know that you are holy. You are exalted above all. Your sovereignty rules over all. Your throne is in the heavens. 
and yet you still love us. You still save us. You still, in our sins and our iniquities and our unfaithfulness, Lord, you have been faithful. You have not forgotten us. So, Lord, I ask right now that we would just, that your spirit would descend on us, that your spirit would descend on our hearts and our minds, and that when we are in you and we are in Christ Jesus and we are looking at you and we are not looking at anything else, when you become great in our lives, Lord, would you become great in our lives, we ask, we pray. Use this morning, use your text, use your word to remind us of, of, of our unfaithfulness, but ultimately, Lord, not because of our unfaithfulness, but it's because of your faithfulness that you are righteous, you are gracious, you are merciful. Lord, you love us more than anything. You, you know us better than anybody, and you love us better than anyone. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your sacrifice that we can now stand in your presence and approach boldly your throne. I pray that we would do that this morning. We ask all these things in your son's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the result of sin is always broken relationships. At its core, the, the number one effect of sin is broken relationships. Sin breaks relationships between us and God. Sin also breaks relationships between us and us, so to speak, between humans, between people. When, when, when we sin against God, that relationship against God is broken. When we sin against another, that relationship with another is broken. The result of sin is always broken relationships. And we do one of two things whenever that happens. We either avoid that person or that relationship or we perform to try to make up for our sins and iniquities. We avoid our relationships, right? So if, if, if we sin against God, one of the two responses that we, one of the three responses, one of the two responses that we try to avoid God, we brush our sin under the rug. We try not to think about it. We try not to bring it up. We hope that God forgets eventually. When we sin against another, we, send, we tend to avoid that relationship. We try to sugarcoat things and make, make sure things are, are better than they seem. We try to maybe even avoid talking to that person or that uh, significant other or relationship or friend or family member altogether when sin breaks that relationship. And then we're walking around with this subtle guilt, this idea that we know, we know that we have sinned, we know that we have done wrong. We're trying to avoid it and so it'll never, it'll never leave us. It'll always follow us around. We try to avoid, we also try to perform. When we sin against God and when we sin against another, we try to the opposite, instead of avoidance, we often try to perform. If I, if I do this, then we'll be good. If I, this is a lot easier with people than it is with God. If I try to give this person something in my effort, in my try harderness, if I try to do this, then God will forgive me and the relationship will be reconciled. If I do this to this person, if I work harder for this person, this person will forgive me and we will be able to have a relationship again. And so because of that, we are constantly working, constantly exhausted, constantly not feeling like we're good enough. So we have either too little esteem because we don't think that anything we do works or we have too much self-esteem because we think that what we are doing is working. And our patience towards each other grows razor thin because if somebody's not patient and gracious towards me, then why should I be patient and gracious towards another? Sin breaks relationships. And so the question is, how do we fix it? We either have this constant guilt in the back of our heads nagging at us, always telling us that we, we can't fix it, 
or we should, we should avoid it, or we should work harder. How do we fix our broken relationships? And I'm actually going to spoil the end of the sermon now. Uh, so I'm going to tell you the answer, and then we're going to see how Ezra 9 and 10 play that out. But we can't. The answer is you can't. You cannot fix your broken relationships. You cannot fix your relationship with God. You cannot fix your relationship with others apart from throwing yourselves completely at the mercy of Jesus on the cross. We cannot, in our own, mend the relationship that sin is permeating constantly. It's in our hearts, it's in our minds, it's in our friends, it's in our world. The flesh, the devil, and the world, they are all constantly trying to break relationships, and we can't do anything except say, Jesus, help me. And we have to fight our sin. We have to work hard to fight our sin. You can't fight your sin, and you have to fight your sin. You can't kill sin inside of you, and you have to kill sin inside of you. Philippians 2, therefore, after, because Jesus is, is God and Jesus is Yahweh and Jesus is exalted as Lord over all, what does it say? It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a command to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do. But actually, it's not you who's working out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's actually God who is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and all, of this, all of this is actually, believe it or not, in Ezra 9 and 10. Ezra 9 and 10 is we're finishing our series in Ezra and we're gonna see that we are unfaithful and God is faithful. That's just the theme of Ezra 9 and 10. We are completely unfaithful and God is faithful. So we've been looking at Ezra uh, for the last couple weeks and today we're gonna finish the book of Ezra. Next week we're gonna start in Nehemiah chapter one. And we've noticed some themes in Ezra and Nehemiah. We've noticed the theme of God's sovereignty. Right? Even though uh, Israel was in exile, God stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, God is sovereign. He, he ended up sending you know, the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. We've, we've noticed the theme of God's sovereignty. We've noticed the theme of God's word. Right, They get back into Jerusalem and they start building the temple and then these bad guys basically come and they stop them and they're like, hey, stop building the temple. We don't want you to do that. So they stopped for like 10 years and then it was God's word through the prophets and through the scriptures that actually stirred them up to complete and finish the temple. Uh, we've noticed the theme of God's sovereignty, God's word. We've noticed the theme of um, uh, a second exodus, so to speak. The first exodus was led by Moses, right? He brought the people out of Egypt into the promised land. We're kind of seeing a second exodus. The people of Israel are under captivity, first Babylonian captivity and now Persian captivity. And now through these leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're actually bringing the people out of slavery into the promised land. We've seen this theme of a second exodus. We've also seen the theme of good motives and unintentional consequences. This is really early on. Good motives and unintentional consequences. Because of the state that Israel's in, Israel's in the state of like, hey, we messed up the first time. That's why we got put in exile. We're now going back to the land. Let's not mess up again. We don't, we don't wanna mess up again. That's a good motive, right? That's a great thing to try not to mess up again. But unintentional consequences we've seen so far, especially in Ezra 2, is that they're kind of forming this little like exclusive group that only they can partake of the promises of God and nobody else can. There were these priests in um, Persia that they actually just lost their job because they couldn't prove their lineage was, was from uh, Israeli descent. So we've seen this, this tension 
Well, that's a good motive, not messing up again, but also is there an unintentional consequence here? We've also noted the uh, structure of Ezra and Nehemiah. How does the book itself kind of fit together? And so far we've been in two movements. And the first movement is chapters one through six, which is actually up on the screen here. And notice the, the flow of the narrative. Let's just think through the flow of the narrative of Ezra chapters one through six. Ezra one starts off with a decree from a king, a foreign king, right? King Cyrus said, hey, you guys can go back home. So decree from foreign king. Next, there was a return. There was this wave of Israelites that are like, hey, we're going back. You know, I think of the VeggieTales song, we're going to the promised land. Anybody? Me? Okay, great. Um, there's this return to uh, uh, Jerusalem. Then when they get there and they return, there's this rebuilding that happens. In the first uh, section, it was the rebuilding of the temple. They laid the foundation. They started rebuilding the walls. But then after they start rebuilding, there's a problem. The problem was in Ezra 4 is that these peoples of the lands, they kind of stopped their, they said, hey, we don't want you to do this. So they, stopped, they frustrated their plans. They stopped their plans. And then it ended in a resolution. Eventually the prophets came along and they, excuse me, spoke the word of the Lord and then the temple was completed. That's the first section. Now we're in a second section of Ezra 7 through 10 and guess how it starts? Decree from a foreign king. This time it's King Artaxerxes. He talks to Ezra and he says, hey Ezra, your, temp your people are over there, your temple's over there, but they don't know how to worship. You're a teacher of the law, go return and worship. So the second thing is that they are returning. Ezra leads this wave of exiles back into the promised land. They return, and then what did we see happen the last, uh, last week is that Ezra started rebuilding. But he didn't start rebuilding like an actual physical structure. He rebuilt the temple worship. He rebuilt the community built based around temple worship. So that's where he left off last week. So can anybody guess what we're going to be talking about this week? That's right. We're going to be talking about the exact same thing. The next two chapters, Ezra 9 and 10, is that there's a problem that happens. And then there's a resolution. There's a problem that happens, and then there is a resolution. So first, what is the problem? Let's look again at Ezra chapter 9, verse one and two, verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is the problem. After these things had been done... The leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, they have not separated themselves from the holy people, <clears throat> uh, sorry, from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, Amorites, try saying that five times fast. Indeed, verse two, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and the officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. The problem in Ezra chapter nine is mixed marriages. The problem in Ezra chapter 9 is mixed marriages. Israelites have married foreign men and women. Israelites have gone back into the land and they have married foreigners. Not only Israelites, but it also says what? The priests, the Levites, and the leaders. The, guys who are, the, the people who are supposed to be the most set apart, the most holy, the most above reproach, the most blameless are the ones that are marrying these foreigners who have detestable practices like all of these countries that are listed. Now, the question is, why is this a, like, why is this a problem? Why is mixed marriages a problem? Because it seems to be pretty serious based on Ezra's response. Why is it a problem? 
Because I, I, Israel, if you remember, Israel is supposed to be a nation set apart, but it's also supposed to be have, grafting people into itself. There are literally laws in the Old Testament that are welcoming the foreigner into uh, Israel. So it's not supposed to be like this completely exclusive thing. Why, why is this a problem? If you remember, on top of that, Joseph, uh, who is Jacob's son, was in Egypt. He goes into slavery, and then he like, rises to power. His wife was Egyptian. Didn't seem to be a problem there. That was a non-Israelite. Moses, the man of God, his wife was Zipporah, who is not an Israelite. Didn't seem to be a problem there. David's great-grandma, King David, his great-grandma, Ruth the Moabite. So we have examples of, of non-Israelites marrying Israelites, and it doesn't seem to be that bad. Why is it here that it says, don't do this? Why is this a problem? It's a problem because typically, generally speaking, it, it, not the exception, but the, the norm, the rule, is that when you marry a foreigner, your heart, what would they do? They, if you marry a non-Israelite, they would bring in their foreign culture, they would bring in their foreign language, they would bring in their foreign practices, all this stuff. They would also bring in their foreign religions, their foreign gods. And what it says in Deuteronomy is that the heart, your heart, if you do that, your heart will be turned away from the one true living God, the God of Israel. And by the way, some of these worship practices, it says detestable practices, in the ancient Near Eastern culture were absolutely horrific. I mean, uh, temple prostitution, child sacrifice, polygamy, just to name a few. If you married a foreigner, they would, odds are they would bring those practices into that relationship. And Deuteronomy 7 says that your heart will be turned away from the Lord. That is why you, it, it, the law says do not marry foreign women unless, there's a caveat, unless they are like Ruth, like Zipporah, like Joseph's wife, and they actually give up their foreign practices and then say, I want to worship, worship the God of Israel. I want to worship Yahweh God. What did Ruth do? Ruth saw the Israelites. She saw that community, and she said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. She put aside her foreign ways, and she entered into the, the, uh, the people of, of Israel. Unfortunately, those women are the exception, not the rule. Like I said, the rule is just to avoid it altogether. To avoid it altogether, just don't marry foreign women. I mentioned Deuteronomy 7. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, if you remember Deuteronomy, Moses is standing there and he's about to send the people into the promised land and he's saying, hey, just remember, follow the law of the Lord and it will go well with you and if you don't, it will go very, very poorly. One of the things he says is that if you marry foreign men and women, I don't, I, both Israelite women marrying men and both Israelite men marrying women, if you do that, your heart will be turned astray you will start to worship foreign gods and then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and he will actually expel you from the land that you're trying to go in. And what do we see happen? That exact same thing. David's son, Solomon, the wisest man, the wisest king. What happened at the end of his life? He's getting old, he has way too many wives and they're all foreigners. And what do they do? They start asking him, hey, Solomon, your God's God of love. Your God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, loyalty, all that stuff. Can you also, since that's the case, can you also build an altar and a temple for me and my God over here? And he says, sure. And he did it again, and he did it again, and he did it again. And the heart of Solomon was turned astray so that the Lord said, the kingdom is gonna be divided because of you. A civil war broke out. And eventually you're gonna be kicked out of the land. That's how seriously God takes it. And that's exactly what happens. Now, what is Ezra doing? Fast forward generations, Ezra's teaching the law. Ezra's teaching these stories. 
Ezra is teaching the story of Moses saying, don't marry foreigners because your heart will be turned astray. And he's teaching the story of Solomon and the example that his heart was turned astray. And now he's teaching this and these leaders and these priests and these Levites are looking around and they're like, oh no, what have we done? We have done the exact same thing that our ancestors did. The sins of the ancestors are being repeated in the sins of the present. We are doing the exact same thing. These people are saying we're marrying foreign women and not only that, it's the leaders, the very people who are supposed to be set apart and the detestable practices they're doing today are the same exact detestable practices they were doing that then. History is repeating itself and they come to Ezra and they tell him that and what is Ezra's response? Chapter nine, verse three, this is Ezra's response. When I heard, when I, Ezra, heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe I pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard and I sat down devastated. That is a serious response. That action, the tearing of the tunic and robe and the pulling out of the hair, that action is only done elsewhere at a funeral when you learn of somebody's death. When, when David learned of his son's death, he, he, when, when David learned that his son was going to die, he tore his tunic and he pulled out his hair. This action is only done when you hear that somebody is going to die or has already died. Ezra is taking this seriously. Ezra's realizing in this moment that it didn't matter that they came back to Jerusalem. They were exiles, they were immigrants, they were refugees. They came back. He said, he did, he's realizing in this moment that it didn't matter that they came back to Jerusalem. It didn't solve their sin and unfaithfulness. It didn't matter that they built the temple it didn't solve their sin and unfaithfulness. It didn't matter that Ezra started all the worship practices again. He started the sacrificial practices again. He started teaching the law of the Lord. It didn't matter because it didn't solve their sin and unfaithfulness. Why? Because sin is still present and sin in this moment is threatening to completely destroy the people of God from the face of the earth. Ezra knows the power of sin. Ezra literally feels the weight and the gravity and seriousness of sin and he treats it like a death. In other words, Ezra sees that the consequences of sin is the same consequences as that of a death. And so what does he do? He prays, he confesses, he laments. We read the prayer earlier, it's the rest of chapter nine so we won't read it again. But this prayer shows us two things about well, it shows us two things. It shows us one thing about God, and it shows us one thing about humanity. This prayer teaches us about God, and this prayer teaches us about humanity, right? Let's look more closely. Throughout Ezra's prayer, Ezra constantly praises God for God's faithfulness. Ezra constantly praises God for God's faithfulness. Here's a few highlights. Grace has come from the Lord to preserve a remnant. God has given us a stake in this holy place. God has given us a little relief. God has given us light to our eyes. God has not abandoned us in our slavery. God has extended his grace to us. God has punished us less than our sins and iniquities deserve. God has given us a remnant. And then verse 15, it says, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. Over and over and over again in this prayer, Ezra is saying, God is faithful. Ezra is also saying, we are unfaithful. We are unfaithful. Israel in particular, humanity in general is unfaithful. Here's a few highlights. It says this, our iniquities are higher than our heads. Our guilt 
is as high as the heaven. Our guilt has been terrible. Our iniquities caused us to be handed over. Our sins have caused us to be put to the sword. We are slaves. We, are aban- we have abandoned the commands that you gave us. We have evil deeds and terrible guilt. Over and over and over again in his prayer, Ezra is saying, yes, God is faithful, but also look, we, humanity, Israel, in particular, humanity in general, is unfaithful. Real quick note, Ezra did not marry a foreign wife. Ezra was not married. And the language that he uses is corporate communal language. He says, our guilt. He doesn't say their guilt. He says, our guilt. He says, I am ashamed he didn't marry a foreign woman. What does that mean? That means that Ezra believes that the sins of the people and the sins of the individual are the same. The sins of the, sin, the, sins of the individual are the sins of the people. The sins of the people are the sins of the individual. And this is really hard for us to grasp in our hyper-individualized society. But, the, but, but we have to realize that we, we actually, Paul talks about this too, we actually want this to happen. The, the sins of the people are the sins of the individual, the sins of the individual are the sins of the people. We want this to happen because that means that in one man, Paul says, in one man all have sinned, right? In one man, Adam, all have sinned. The sins of that individual have now become the sins of the people and vice versa. What that means then is that means that, perchance, the righteousness of an individual can actually become the righteousness of a people. And that's what they were waiting for. If the sins of an individual can become the sins of a people, then that means that the righteousness of an individual can become the righteousness of a people. And we are not individually uh, isolated people. We are actually individual members of one body. Ezra, in his, in his prayer, he is saying, I am in the same boat as all of these people. And the last prayer is Ezra 9, or the last verse in Ezra 9 is 9.15. And this is, this is where he sums it all up. Ezra sums up the whole prayer. And this is going to be on the screen too. It says, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. Over and over, he says, God is faithful in this prayer. For we survive as a remnant today. And then he talks about humans being unfaithful. Here we stand before you with our guilt. Though no one can stand in your presence because of this. God, you are faithful because we're here. You are true to your promises. And then he says that, then he says that the Israel's sin has, present, has prevented them from standing in the presence of God. Their sin has literally broken the relationship between them and God. Their sin has kept them from the presence of God. God has kept on being faithful. They have kept on sinning. Ezra views the sin as a death. And then he says that in God, God is faithful and we are unfaithful. And the sins of us have literally separated us. No one can stand in your presence today. And I hope I hope before we move into chapter 10, we can see where this is going. Sin separates us from God. Ezra mourns. Ezra in his action and his confession is showing us that he understands that the wages of sin is death, both physically and spiritually. So what do they need to do? They need to remove their guilt. They need to atone for their sins. They need to forgive their, they need to get forgiven. They need something or someone to be able to bring them back into the presence of God. What are they going to do in order to remove their guilt? Chapter 10, let's see what happens. I'm gonna summarize chapter 10 for you. It's one of the funniest 
honestly. It's, it's really funny. And you'll see here in a second. I hope you think it's funny. <clears throat> uh, I put earlier in the, the flow of the chapter, I put resolution in, in quotes because, I mean, we can't have a resolution in the Old Testament. Like it, it, what Ezra and Nehemiah does is it, it raises the expectation. It builds this anticipation. Ezra 9 is saying like, there is a problem. Ezra 10 is like, we've got a solution. And you're sitting there and you're reading and you're like, oh my gosh, this, this, is, this is it. This is the solution. It gets your expectations so high and then absolutely they just come crashing down. So here's the summary of chapter 10. Ezra is weeping. Ezra is praying. He gives this lament uh, prayer and um, a confession in Ezra chapter 9. It says a very large crowd gathered around Ezra. A very large crowd. It says tons and tons of men, women, and children gather around Ezra. Which, and then they start feeling bad for their sins. So they see Ezra. He's weeping. He's crying. And then you, they see this and they're like, oh man, th- this, is, this is wrong. This is a sin. We, have, we are no different than our ancestors. Sin is still repeating itself in my heart and in our mind. So then they say to themselves, they say, we've messed up. We've broken uh, our promise. So let's make a new promise. Let's promise again. Let's make a covenant. Let's try harder. And then we won't sin again. How many times have you and I done that? Let's, uh, let's not even actually give the option of these foreign wives to become Israelites. Let's not even get the option. Let's just cut it off at the root and say, let's just divorce all these women. Let's divorce them all and let's send them away. And so Ezra, uh, this guy Shechaniah comes up to Ezra and he says, hey, do it. Tell him to do it. And Ezra's like, okay. So Ezra tells people to sign an oath. He literally makes them sign an oath. And he's like, hey, sign this oath and say that you're going to do this. And they're like, okay, we're going to do it. So then, that's with the leaders, then they make an announcement, I don't know how, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. They make an announcement to all of Israel and all of Israel gathers within three days and they gather as one man in Jerusalem and it's raining on this day. And this is in the Bible, you can read it yourself later. Uh, It's raining and Ezra says to them, he says, we have done terribly, we have messed up, we're no different than our ancestors, we are sinful, sin is still in us, we need to make it right. So we came up with this plan, we're just gonna divorce all our wives and send them away. And the people are like, hey, that's a great idea, but it's raining right now, and the weather sucks, so can we go home, and then you guys figure out a plan, and then later over the next three or four months, you guys figure out who married who, and then you just tell them individually to divorce their wives, because it's raining really bad. And Ezra goes, okay. So that's what happens. They all go home and over the next couple months, Ezra and his leaders, they, they get together and they're like, okay, we need to figure out. And then there's a list of names. The end, the end of chapter 10 is just a list of names. It's this person married this person, this person, this person, all these people. These people married foreign women. And then we get to the very last verse of the very last chapter of Ezra. And this is what it says. Ezra 10, 44. It said, all of these had married foreign women and some of the wives had given birth to children and then the book ends. Just completely unresolved. Did, did it work? Did it, did it not work? Why, why is there, like, like, it feels like this is just like a cliffhanger. Like, there, there needs to be a dot, 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 or an ellipsis, or a to be continued, or something like that. And yet, here we are, and we're just sitting here wondering, did, they made a covenant to try harder, and then it just says that the covenant happened, and then it's over. 
Can they, are, there, are there sins atoned for? Did this work? Can they now enter and stand in the presence of God? What about the consequences? What happened to these women? What happened to these children? I mean, a family unit is just divided right now. Is this a good motive and an unintentional consequence? Are these women just left uh, high and dry and uh, have to fend for themselves? What about the children? Are they just gonna raise the children by themselves? What about, th- there's no answer. There's no answer to what happened here. The, the Bible is silent on these issues. So what on earth is this passage doing? Why is this passage of scripture in our Bibles? Why does it end on a cliffhanger? Why does it end with no resolution? The answer, and this is why I love the Old Testament and I really love Ezra and Nehemiah, is because the Bible, the Old Testament, literally cannot have a resolution. They cannot have fixed their sins here. You know why? Because if they fixed their sins here, if they fixed their problem, there would be no need for Jesus. If this old covenant worked, there'd be no need for a new covenant. If this works-based righteousness worked, there would be no need for a faith-based righteousness. If there was a resolution in Ezra 10, two things would happen. If we found out, if, we re- if there were a few extra verses, and it said, and it worked, and they all lived happily ever after the end. If that happened, two things would happen. One, this text of divorce would become prescriptive, right? Not just descriptive, it would become prescriptive. It would mean then that if you're a Christian and you marry a non-Christian, it would say you have to get divorced. And we know from scripture, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that is not the case. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you are uh, unmarried, don't, marry a, a, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry a non-Christian. Don't marry a non-Jesus follower. But if you are already married and your spouse is not a follower of Jesus, don't get divorced because your holiness might actually lead to their salvation. Your holiness and your salvation might actually lead to their salvation. So clearly, Ezra 10 can't resolve. Otherwise, this would say, just, you know, get it. And we know from scripture elsewhere that God hates divorce. So that's the first thing that would happen if this resolved here. And the second thing that would happen, as we talked about earlier, if if it resolved in Ezra 10, there would be no reason for for Matthew 1 in the New Testament. If this worked, the message would be try harder. The message would be, yes, sin is really important and sin is really like serious, but if you try harder and we all muster up enough courage to do something about it, then we'll be good. And we'll be able to remove our guilt and we will then be able to stand in the presence of God. And is that the case? No. Ezra 10, Ezra 9 and 10 is showing us yet again that the only way, the only way to mend our broken relationship with God, to mend our broken relationship with each other is through Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is is the one that came and he said, you know, the, All of these attempts, all of these trying harder, all of these everything, they did not work. And in Jesus, it is now the new covenant, his his flesh and his his flesh on the cross and his blood that was shed for us now cleanses us from our sins. Our sins are atoned for, not in our trying harder, our sins are atoned for in and only through Christ. do Do you see how this just sets up, it just literally sets up Jesus. Like it shows us so badly how much we need a savior. 
because it just ends in such an abrupt way. And so there's a few questions I want to ask. And the first is from Ezra 9. The second is from Ezra 10. The first question I want to ask us today is, do we repent like Ezra? What did Ezra do when he heard about the sins of the people? He lamented as if it was a death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. Do we live and believe like we actually think our sin leads to death? We're really good at justifying our sins. It was just a little comment. It's just a little glance. It was just a little impatience. I'm tired. It's just a little unhealthy anxiety. If you knew my situation, we are really good at justifying our sins. Really good at brushing them under the rug. Ezra believed that the wages of sin was death. And in his prayer, he said, over and over, he said, God, you are faithful. We are unfaithful. His faithfulness, his, in Ezra's time, God's faithfulness was that God kept saving Israel over and over and over again. In our time, God's faithfulness is that he sent the ultimate sacrifice. He sent the great high priest. We don't need Ezra anymore. We don't need Moses anymore. We don't need sacrifices anymore. It is in and through Jesus that he has shown us his faithfulness. God is faithful so that our, our, uh, our sins, our sins that we brush under the rug, our sins that we avoid, our sins that we justify over and over again, guess what? They don't, we don't need to justify our sin. We need to throw ourselves completely at the foot of the cross saying, I am sinful. I am broken. I do believe that my sin and my uh, iniquities is death. It does lead to death. It leads to a separation of me and God, and it leads to broken relationships all over the place. How can we not see that? And instead of saying, instead of saying I'm gonna try harder and make myself a covenant, I'm actually gonna say, I want to throw myself at the new covenant, and I want to trust in Jesus, because he was without sin. Martin Luther used to beat himself up when he would sin. Before he read Romans, he would beat himself, he would make a whip and he would whip himself because he thought that what he needed to do that in order to be cleansed from his sin. We do the same thing, not as explicitly, but we do the same thing. We work, we work to fix our sin. Do we repent like Ezra? Do we view our sin like Ezra? And when we do repent, do we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness? What does it say? Um, Spurgeon says, the devil knows your name but calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin but calls you by your name. What I'm not saying is that we need to beat ourselves up over this. That's what, that's what the enemy does. They whisper, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. And Jesus says, I know you're not good enough, but I love you and you are my son and you are my daughter and I have mended the relationship. The next question I wanna ask is where do we look to salvation? Where do we look for salvation? Where did Ezra and Ezra 10 look? He looked at a covenant to divorce a bunch of people and it didn't work. Where do we go to for our salvation? Sometimes it might be an escape thing, right? We, we don't actually wanna deal with it so we avoid and so we fill our time, our minds, our energies on other things and that way we can just kind of leave this whole thing just for Sunday mornings or other times? Do we look for salvation in our, our avoidance? Do we look for salvation in our performance? 
We look for salvation and it's like, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry I messed up again, but I promise, if, I promise next time I'll do better. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying throw your hands up in the air and don't do anything. Well, you know, I sinned, but Jesus did it all, so I don't have to do anything, and um, I don't have to try to avoid sin. I can just, like, live my life how I want, and Jesus will take care of it. That is not what I'm saying, and that's not biblical at all. We are to constantly be fighting sin. Genesis 4, sin is crouching at our doors. Its desire is for us. It wants to rule over us. Jonathan Edwards says, if you are not killing sin, sin is killing you. We do not drift into holiness. We cannot casually get more and more like Jesus. Philippians 2, again, I mentioned this earlier. After Paul talks about Jesus, who in his selflessness descended, became like one of us, and then ascended into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection. After that, after the most profound Christ hymns in the New Testament, Paul says, you need to work your salvation out. Work out your salvation. If you just took that verse, you know, we like to take the other verse in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you take that verse, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, that sounds a lot like works-based righteousness. But the next line is most important because it's actually not you working it out. It is God who is working in you to will and to, uh, for, his, for his good pleasure. In Galatians, he says, um, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but it is what? Christ who lives in me. The next line. But the life I live, I live according to him. Well, who is it? Is it Christ living in you or is it you living out your life? Is it Christ fighting? Is it the spirit of God that we have that's fighting sin in us or is it us fighting sin on our own strength? Yes. The answer is both. We have a new heart. Ezra 10 and 9 and 10, they did not have a new heart. They had an old covenant. They needed a new covenant. They had an old, hard, calloused heart of stone. We now have hearts of flesh that the spirit guides us in wisdom. The spirit guides us in strength. The spirit gives himself to us. And Jesus, when he ascended, he sent us his spirit. And now we are temples of the living God. We, are, we can say it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And yet, at the same time, I am living my life. Where do we look to for salvation? Dallas Willard says, God is not opposed to effort, but he is opposed to earning. When, we, when, when our lives become, I'm going to earn this, that is, that is not the gospel. But when our lives are, Jesus has loved me so much that I am completely transformed from the inside out. And now I am going to give my everything for this cause, for this call, for this mission, for Jesus. That is effort and that is, that is a good thing. To be a Christian is the easiest call in the world and the hardest call in the world. It will cost you nothing and it will cost you everything. It's a free gift of God. And yet, the call to discipleship is one that will cost you everything. It'll cost you your life. So that's Ezra 9 and 10, and that's how the book ends. And uh, I'm so glad it ends that way because the, the, the whole Old Testament just constantly points us to who are you looking at? Who are you looking towards? What, do we repent like Ezra? Do we, I was convicted of this. Do we view our sin as a death? Do we actually believe that the wages of sin is death? And then finally, where do we look to for salvation? So I want, I want to sit with those questions um, 
And I, I do want to give you a time to think, not a time to <clears throat> transition or, or do anything like that, but a time to just sit and think and, and, and ask the Spirit to genuinely convict us of our sins, but also ask the Spirit to remind us that even in our conviction of sins, it is easy to feel, feel uh, down and, and depressed and guilt-ridden, but knowing that it is Christ who paid it all, and we only have to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and live. I'm gonna give you a few minutes to reflect and then um, Tom's gonna come back up and uh, lead us in communion. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.